Great sermon. Right on point, too. Before I uh, pray for illumination this morning, just a couple of notes. After the service this morning, we do have a time of uh, food and fellowship. If you'd like to uh, stay, um, certainly if you're visiting, you're welcome to be part of that. And I understand we have an abundance of desserts, so it's going to be good. And uh, so please feel free to partake of that directly uh, in the fellowship hall after the service. And um, also want to mention, uh, please be in prayer for several of our youth who are participating in the Adirondack Leadership Program. It's Trevor and Timothy and Than. Uh, they are up there in kind of a survival mode, but you'll actually see Trevor uh, via video this morning. And uh, uh, one last thing, I, you know, we uh, gave thanks for some of the stuff uh, Reba's been doing and um, been very uh, grateful for that last week. One of the ways I think we could really help uh, this whole process as we are also starting to think about the fall and getting back together is that we could use folks who would be willing to do some things in the church, volunteer in various ministries. We kind of have to build that structure back. And so if you're willing to do something, if you're willing to be part of a nursery on Sunday mornings here for our kids. So, uh, and also we're thinking about trying to have a nursery on Wednesday night for the uh, Koinonia nights when those resume. And part of that is really an opportunity to minister to younger families with children. And if we want to be a church that's attractive uh, to folks like that, if we want to help those folks grow in life, we will need to provide some of these things. So I hope you'll consider that. Or if you're interested in other ways, you might be able to volunteer. A lot of these things are targeted in short term. Uh, please contact the office this week and just say, hey, how can I help uh, build uh, the community here at RCRC? That would be a wonderful uh, thing to happen is to build back that network of, of volunteers. Okay, with that, let us turn our attention to God's holy word and let us pray for God's light. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own. The hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning is Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. In our prayers for you, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for, for you in heaven, you have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is, just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, so it is, so it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So one day during the last week of Jesus's ministry, he was walking along and he walked past a fig tree. And he went up to the fig tree, which looked healthy at first glance. And so he, it was full of leaves and he walked up to it because uh, he was hungry and he was looking for fruit, for figs. 
But when he got there and he inspected it, he found that there was no evidence of fruit on it at all. And he responded rather harshly to the tree. He said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Guess what happened to the tree? It died. It withered. They came back the next morning. It had withered and it had died. And many people find that a difficult text to really grab hold of in their minds because, you know, does, does Jesus hate trees? What does he got against trees? Why is he killing trees? That kind of thing. And what we have to understand is that fig tree was a metaphor. It was a metaphor for the people of God. Jesus had come expecting to find fruitfulness among his people. And although they looked good on the outside, what, what he found was that there was no fruit. You see, Jesus really didn't kill the tree. The tree was already dead. It was dead in the sense it was not producing fruit. It had no life-giving productivity to it. Fruitfulness, which is our topic this morning, is core to the Christian life. It is there in the fruit of the Spirit, right? All of these things are spoken of as fruit, fruit of the Spirit. We have Jesus describing his relationship to us as that of vine and branches. We are like a vineyard connected to Christ, expected to produce fruit. Jesus in Mark 7, 18 through 20 says, A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will know them by their what? By their fruits. The point is this. Jesus is always inspecting the leaves of our lives, if you will. He's always coming to us, looking at us, looking for fruit in our lives. He wants to see fruitfulness. He wants to find fruitfulness in us. But that raises a lot of questions for us, right? The first question is, well, how do I get that fruit? What is the source of that fruit? How do I produce it? I want to please Jesus. How do I get that fruit? It raises the question of what is the fruit, right? What is the nature of this fruit I'm supposed to produce? What is Jesus looking for in my life? And then there's the question of what is this fruit for? What's the purpose of producing this fruit in my life? Well, in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul answers all three of those very fundamental questions. He answers for us here in this text these three questions. He reveals to us the source of our fruitfulness, the nature of our fruitfulness, and the purpose of our fruitfulness. And that will be the structure of our three-point outline this morning. The source, the nature, and the purpose of Christian fruitfulness. So let's begin with the source. Because it's the most important piece in the entire puzzle. Where does this fruit come from? How do we produce this fruit? Well, thankfully, in this case, Paul tells us explicitly how this happens in our lives. And we find this in the literary structure of the text. Sometimes when you're studying a text, what you, the main point of it comes to you in the structure, how the author put it together. And in this particular text, most scholars recognize a certain literary structure called a chiasm or a chiasm. If you guys could put up that first graphic on the screen, 
here is the chiasm in this. It's basically, it's an inverted parallel. You can see it, A, B, C, B, A. And this comes from David Garland in his commentary. He's put this out. This is the NIV version of it. But what you have here are these parallels. You know, often when we think of reading in English, we think of the conclusion, the main point being at the end. Often in Hebrew and Greek literature, the meaning, the main point is nestled right there in the center. And so you can see the parallels there. I've highlighted the words of love and faith. You see them returning in A prime. I, the, you know, hearing and truth, that's repeated in B prime. But there in the middle is the main point of this text. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Fruitfulness is the main part of this text. And here Paul tells us what the source of that fruitfulness is. What is the source of the fruitfulness? Says it right there, all over the world, this gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing. And you might even hear some echoes there in that bearing fruit and growing phrase. Many have noted that being an allusion back to Genesis 1.28, which talks about humanity being fruitful and multiplying and filling what? The whole earth. And what Paul is saying here is basically he's replaced gospel procreation, if you will, for human procreation. He's saying if you want fruitfulness, if you want to see multiplication throughout the world, throughout the earth, if you want to fulfill that creation mandate, it is the gospel that will do that work. The gospel is the source of our fruitfulness. You can take that down. Thank you, guys. Of course, that raises some questions, right? Well, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And I, I ask you, could, could you answer that question? If somebody asks you, what is the gospel, could you give them an answer to that question? Because if the gospel is the source of all of this Christian fruitfulness, we ought to know what that is. Now, I looked around at various definitions, and you can, might guess there are a myriad of definitions of what the gospel is. I tried to find a short one. Let me give you a short one. The shortest one I could find, uh, Graham Goldsworthy, put it this way. The gospel is the word about Jesus Christ and what he did for us in order to restore us to a right relationship with God. The gospel is the word about Jesus Christ and what he did for us in order to restore us to a right relationship with God. That definition tells us something about the gospel. The gospel is something that is proclaimed. It is a word about Jesus Christ. It tells us that the gospel must be heard, right? It must be received. And we saw that in even the text here, in the words word and hearing and truth coming to us. That's the gospel is something proclaimed and heard. But most importantly and most fundamentally, the gospel is a word about Jesus Christ. And what he has done. Jesus, the person, Jesus in his work. The gospel is about Jesus Christ. And I could even go so far to say that the two are inseparable. That you could say that Jesus is the gospel. Jesus himself is the personification of the good news of the gospel. He is the gospel. You can't separate the person from the work and the word. And what that means is this. 
that Christian fruitfulness begins with accepting Jesus Christ, with embracing Him, with embracing that good news proclaimed to you about what He has done to set you right with God. That's where it all begins. That's the seed and the source of Christian fruitfulness. The gospel is the source of Christian fruitfulness. Now, that's also important for this very reason, is that if you forget that fundamental point, you will go wrong. You will go wrong in every way. You will miss the boat entirely. This is part of uh, Christian history. Every, the, the biggest theological error is getting this fundamental point wrong, of missing the point that it all begins with Christ. Throughout Christian history, the core theological error, the error that gave rise to the Reformation, the reason why we are here as a Christian Reformed Church, is because of the error that you could do fruitfulness without the gospel coming to you first. Without Christ changing your nature. It's the proverbial putting the theological cart before the horse. You guys could pop up that little graphic. Now, this is a little funny graphic, but this is the most important thing I'll probably ever tell you. It's about the Ordo Salutis. That's the fancy Latin name we call it. It's about the order of salvation. And the most important thing to understand about the order of salvation is that justification, being made right by God, the gospel coming to you and changing you, precedes sanctification, the fruitfulness of your life in holiness. And throughout history, people have sometimes got those things wrong. And you can see here, justification is the horse. And the cart is our fruitfulness of sanctification. And if you put that first, if you put the cart of sanctification before the horse of justification, that's what happens. You're not going anywhere. You either end up burning yourself out, or you end up in self-righteousness thinking it all depends upon you. This is why it's so important. You can take that down. This is why it's so important to grasp this basic idea that the source of Christian fruitfulness is the gospel. Luther put it this way. He said, good works are not the cause, but the fruit of righteousness. When we have become righteous, and Jesus does that, when we become righteous, then First, are we able and willing to do good? And then he put it this way, the tree makes the apple, the apple does not make the tree. And too many theologies, including secular theology, tries to do that very thing. It's all about apples trying to make trees. The gospel tree produces the fruit of Christian fruitfulness and good works in our lives. As Jesus said about when he spoke about the vine and the branches, he said this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. The gospel is the source of Christian fruitfulness. You want to find fruitfulness in your life? Go to Christ. Go to the gospel. Embrace the good news in your life. It is the seed that gives rise to the fruit of the Christian life. The source. Number two, point number two, is the nature of the fruit. And Paul tells us that too in this text. He tells us the nature. He summarizes 
really the nature of Christian fruitfulness. He tells us what the fruit looks like in a very familiar triad that you are all familiar with, faith, hope, and love. If you want to know what the Christian fruit is, what fruit we should be producing, the gospel producing through us, it is these three things, and I want to just think about each one of those for a moment this morning. Faith, and I'll do it in the order in the text, faith, love, and hope. These are the fruits of the Christian life. So what are they? Well, faith. First, he talks about faith, and Paul often talks about faith. He's the apostle of faith, but he does something very uh, uh, unusual here. He uses an unusual construct in talking about faith. He specifically refers in the text to this faith being in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus. And although there's debate among commentators on this, I believe the point being made here is that Christ is the object and focus of our faith, that our faith is in Christ. In Him as the object, that it's a commitment to Jesus Christ as the person in whom you are placing your trust. And that makes a lot of sense in this letter, because you remember last week, these people were at risk of adding something to Christ, of Christianity, and, and Paul says this, the fruit of the Christian life, the fruit that the gospel produces is faith in Christ. It is Christocentric faith. It is centered upon Him. That gift of faith enables us to embrace, trust, and commit our lives to Jesus Christ. That's one of the fruits of the gospel, is placing our faith commitment in Jesus. The second one is love. Love. Paul, in verse 4, says he has heard of the love they, the church, the Colossian church, of the love they have for all the saints. Love. This love that is distinctly a Christian love, this agape love, this love that is something about demonstrable love. It's not an emotion or a feeling. It is actions towards others for their welfare, for their benefit. Peter Davids describes it this way. Love does not indicate how they felt about all of God's people, but how they acted toward them. That is lovingly. When the gospel comes into your life, when you embrace Christ through faith, what comes from you is love for all the saints. And it's not easy to do that, is it? Because it doesn't say in the text, love for the saints you like. All the saints. That's not easy. I'm going to tell you a little secret. It might be a surprise. There's sometimes difficult people in the church. I was reading this past week an article by a pastor, Steve Dunmire. It's entitled, 10 Things I've Learned from Difficult People. And he prefaces that with, you know, how when he went into the ministry, people warned him, uh, you know, you, you're, you're going to deal with some difficult people. And uh, he, even though he had that warning, he was still surprised by some of the things he encountered. He recounts some of those in the article. But then he goes on to say what he learned from difficult people. And that's an interesting thing for us to think about. 
Because we live in a time and in a culture where we avoid difficult people, we block them, we don't associate with them, we enter into echo chambers where we can basically hear our own thoughts spoken back to us. But one of the odd things about the church, the church as community, is it is a place where you are getting along with people who are different, who voted for the wrong person in your mind. Difficult people. And he goes on to list these 10 uh, different things, and I'll just share them with you briefly. Difficult people have the nerve to say what everyone else is thinking. That's one of the benefits of difficult people, and I've experienced that. You know, easygoing people, they don't say the stuff, but difficult people, they'll say it and accuse you in maybe what other people are thinking and not saying. It helps you, secondly, to develop a thick skin. It helps to reveal your insecurities. This really goes to a problem, and I have this problem too, my need to be liked, right? It exposes that because somebody doesn't like you. It helps you, fourthly, to clarify what you're doing. That is, when difficult people challenge you, it makes you have to defend what you're doing to think it through. Fifthly, it tells you you are doing something right because sometimes you're pushing against difficult people because of something that needs to change in the church. You're hitting one of those ceilings, those obstacles that needs to move. It helps to create supporters in your life. It brings out sympathy in other people. They know you're dealing with a difficult person. And he talks about it being helps him to make a better boss and a better subordinate because you try not to do that to other people. It drives you to prayer. But the last thing, and this is really the point I want you to think about this morning, he says the last one he lists and the most important, what he learned from difficult people is he says this, I am someone's difficult person. I am someone's difficult person. He writes, I know I have been a difficult person in someone else's life. Sometimes I appear difficult to another person because of a disagreement. Sometimes it is just because of a personality conflict. And sometimes it comes with being a person in leadership. But I have learned to love difficult people because, and here's the key, loving them is a way I can do unto others what I would have them do to me Learning from difficult people and learning to love them is still a work in progress, but I hope that someday I'll be able to truly love difficult people as God loves difficult me. That's the point. Right? This is what Christian love is all about. It's not easy to love all the saints, particularly the difficult one. But if you understand the gospel, if you understand what Jesus has done, we're the difficult people that God loved. Nothing lovely, nothing commendable, but he loved us. And so when the gospel comes into our lives, one of the fruits it produces is love for all people, even the difficult people in the church. And it's one of the benefits of the church. Is you learn to love difficult people. Unlike faith, which must never bend, love must give in compromise. Luther, again, is helpful. He said, faith like light should always be simple and unbending, while love like warmth should beam forth on every side and bend to every necessity of our brethren or our sisters. Love, particularly love for all the saints, for one another, is a second fruit of the gospel. Faith, love, and of course the last of the triad is hope. The gospel seed enters into your life. It produces this faith in Christ. It produces this love for all the saints. And it provides hope. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up in, for you in heaven, you have heard of this hope 
before in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. What is biblical hope? It is forward-looking. It is about the future. It is eschatological. This hope laid up for you in heaven. It's the hope that our brother Ken has realized in Christ. Faith is something that reaches up to God. Love is something that reaches out to others. Hope is something that reaches forward to grab on to something we don't see and we don't have, but we believe in. A better future because God is on the throne and will bring that about in our lives. And it's hard to be hopeful now, isn't it? We look around at divisions in our country. We look around at things that have happened. We look around at the numbers of people who have died. We look at what's going on in Haiti right now. What's going on in Afghanistan right now. What happened in Florida. The surges going on in South Africa and Myanmar and places like that. We look at our own city. We have had already the same number of homicides we had all of last year, and last year wasn't good. We have a state of emergency. We have about violence. It's hard to have hope in these times, in these moments. It's hard to have hope for the future. And here is a little important fact about biblical hope. And it's really around that preposition I just used, hope for something. The difference of biblical hope is when you change that preposition from hope for to hope in. The Christian hopes for things, just like everybody else. But we have another dimension to our hope. We not only hope for something, we hope in someone. Our hope has a bedrock. You see, the difference here, and I want to credit an article that I read from uh, Scott McClellan in Relevant Magazine. It's, how do you have hope when you're not optimistic? And that describes this, right? How do you have hope when you're not optimistic? And he, he talks about this very distinction. He talks about the example of the Apostle Paul. What happened with the Apostle Paul? He got this thorn in the flesh. What did he hope for? For it to be gone. Right? I hope for this not to be wearing my clown shoe anymore. Right? We hope for things in our lives, and we should hope for them. But those are circumstantial things. Right? We don't know how it's going to go, how it's going to turn out. We can't foresee those things. We should hope for, pray for, work for them. But if that's all we have, we will have, uh, be tossed to and fro in our hope. The Apostle Paul didn't get what he hoped for. God said, you're keeping that thorn in the flesh, but here's what I will do. I will make my grace sufficient for you to bear it. He gave him hope in God. I won't take that away, but I will give you a bedrock upon which to stand. McClellan in the article says, As Christians, we may or may not receive what we hope for, but the one we hope in stands ready to give of himself instead. That's Christian hope. It's hope that transcends our circumstances. It's hope in, not just hope for something. That's the fruit of the gospel. The source of Christian fruitfulness is the gospel. The, fruit of, the nature of the fruit is faith in Christ, love for all the saints, hope in God. 
for the future. Faith, love, hope. So I've told you the source. I've told you the nature of the fruit. The third question was, well, what's it for? What's all this fruit for? Let me answer that question. Our last point, the purpose of the fruit. What is it for? Well, in one sense, it's for us, right? It is a gift to us, faith and and love and hope. These are things that enrich our lives, help us to flourish, hold us up in times of distress. But these fruits ultimately are not just for us. They're ultimately meant to be shared. The purpose of the fruit is to share the fruit. If you think of, as Kyle pointed out so well in his sermon, if you think about the gospel as a vegetable garden, what happens when you have a vegetable garden in your backyard? You do all this work, you plant the seed, right? The plant grows. And what happens when the harvest comes? You got too much. You have too much. It's so abundant. And what do you do with it? You bring it to church and you leave it out back there, right? It's always a pile of zucchinis back there or something. But that's a picture of the gospel. It produces too much, too much for one person to consume. It's not meant for you. It's designed to be abundant and overflowing, to be passed out and to be shared like the zucchinis at church or the tomatoes that Kyle talked about. The gospel is abundant. That's how this whole letter came into the Bible. That's why I'm preaching on this this morning. Because this guy, Epaphras, he brought the gospel and shared it with this church in Colossae. Where did he get it from? He got it most likely from the Apostle Paul during Paul's time in Ephesus. But you see the chain of the cycle of it, if you will. It is that life cycle, seed and plant and fruit and seed and plant and fruit. It is meant to be shared. Paul put it one time, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. That's the picture of the gospel. That's what the fruit is for. It is for others. It's meant to be shared. Now, as I conclude this sermon, this is the point I want you to think about. And here's where I want you to use a little bit of your Christian imagination. I want to engage your sanctified imagination. I think there's something profound in this idea that if we capture this as a congregation, if the Christian church captured this as a whole, it could be very powerful and profound in the life of the church and in our lives as individual Christ followers. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before, Christ the royal master leads against the foe, Forward into battle, see his banner go. Often in Christian history, the warrior imagery, that warrior model has been used to exemplify what the Christian life is about. And certainly the scriptures use military imagery, warrior imagery, I'd argue mostly in defensive ways, but it's certainly there in scripture. But what has often happened in the church is this has been overused. This has been misapplied. We talk a lot about culture wars, that we are at war, we are being assailed, we are being attacked, and we need to attack back. 
And it used to just be Christians, or it used to just be the political right or whatever that engaged in culture wars, but now it's the militant left that's doing it as well. They have adopted a warrior mentality, an attack mentality. It's in the church, it's in the culture, we see it in that hymn, and I think we need to change that. But if you get rid of the warrior model, what, what fills its place? What's going to be the model for the church? Well, let me suggest the farmer model. If this is the picture of the gospel, if it's a, basically a vegetable garden, if it's this idea of fruitfulness, if it's this life cycle, if it's about planting seeds, if it's about harvesting, if it's about sharing, then shouldn't it be about farming? And isn't that all over the scripture? Didn't Jesus use that so often, that model of the farmer? And this really came home and impressed me when I was reading an article in Modern Reformation magazine by Wendy Elsop. It's entitled, The Model for Christian Manhood. The Model for Christian Manhood. And in that article, she was talking about what's going on in the church, in culture, the messages we are getting, the changes that are happening, the understanding of what it means to be a man, those type of things. And let me just play with this a little bit. She, you know, in, uh, one of the great things that's occurred in our culture is that there are many positive messages to young women now, young girls, and I'm so glad for that. I have a young daughter myself, and I want those messages. I want every door possibly open to her. She's going into STEM, and I'm so glad that those messages are out in the culture. At the same time, there have been messages given to men about what not to be anymore. And largely, that's been a good corrective, right? It's been a good corrective, the, the decoupling of Jesus and John Wayne, right? Or getting rid of some of these things, however you want to phrase them. It has been an appropriate corrective action. But what will fill that void? If men are not to be warriors, if that's not the imagery we want to set up, what should they be? And one of the things that concerns me as a pastor is I see a lot of listless, purposeless men out there who don't have any direction in life, and I don't want one of them to marry my daughter. So what can replace that? And she argues in, that, in this article, the farmer model. Think about what a farmer does. It's a strong imagery. It's about conserving, protecting, tending, keeping, growing, sharing, flourishing. There's nothing weak about it. There's nothing violent about it either. It, it, it emphasizes all that is good of caring and stewarding and husbanding, conserving, caring, tending, and growing. And of course, what did God do with Adam? Did he make him a warrior? No, he made him a farmer. He put him in a garden. He said, tend this, keep this, grow this. And although she was writing her article about Christian men, she certainly acknowledges, and I would argue entirely, this is not necessarily a male trait to be a farmer. It is a Christian trait. It is for all of us. Eve was in that garden as well. And what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is that should be our model. As a congregation and as a church, we should be farmers. Planting the seed of the gospel, harvesting the fruits of the gospel, and then sharing those fruits in here and out there. 
And you can think about it right now, about the people in this congregation who could use a little faith. A little help in that nurturing of their faith. There are people here in this church who could use a little love. And there are definitely people in this church who could use hope. And if you've got extra zucchinis out there, of faith and love and hope, share them. Yesterday I attended the, our, the cancer support group that Christina and James lead here in our church. And I was just really moved by seeing this exact thing happening of people coming together, planting faith and hope and love in each other's lives. That's what we're supposed to do. It's not shared by the sword. It's shared by the seed. In her article, and I'll conclude with this, she rewrote the lyrics to Onward Christian Soldiers this way, Wendy Elsop. Onward Christian farmer, rebuilding after war. The fields are strewn with shrapnel, but call, us to, but call to us for more. Their depths hold precious nutrients our people deeply need. We call out now the metal that we may plant the seed. Let's plant the seed. Let's plant the seed of the good news. And if we do, we will find fruitfulness because all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for the fruitfulness of the Christian life. We thank you for the good news. We thank you for faith and hope and love. We thank you that we can share these things. Let us be a church that shares these things. Let us be fruitful, Lord. Let us be farmers. And may we see changes around us as we share the bounty of the harvest that you produce through your Holy Spirit and your word in our lives. Let us find fruitfulness. When Jesus comes to us, comes to this church and comes to us and looks under the leaves of our lives, may he find fruit. We ask you to do this work in and through us for your glory and for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.